Our God and our Father, we thank you for the time that you've given us together for Christian education, uh, to think more about the faith once for all delivered to the saints, and to see how these things play out in our lives. Help us, O Lord, we pray. Give us teachable spirits. Help us to be conformed to your word. And Lord, we pray that you would make us bright and shining lights in a dark and twisted world. And help us, O Lord, we pray, to be salt and light in the culture in which we live and to fulfill our vocations in a way that glorifies you. For this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, last week we looked at the cultural mandate, Genesis 1. Uh, so if you weren't here last week, uh, we, there is, there is, uh, the first class is recorded. You can go back and you can listen to that. But in the cultural mandate in Genesis 1, we see that humans were made for cultural activity. Uh, cultural activity is everything that we do, basically, uh, as human beings uh, that is common. Uh, the, the three large areas that we engage in uh, as human beings that reflects God's holy ways are rule, work, and rest. So God the creator in the beginning rules over all, puts Adam as his vice regent to rule over the earth. God works in what are described as six days, morning and evening. Man is to work, puts Adam in the garden, Genesis 2.15, to work and to guard the garden. And God rests, not that he gets tired, but he does it to give us a pattern for which we are to live. And so we are to rest. Uh, six and one is the ordinary rhythm of uh, human life. But cultural activity included in those three categories uh, would also involve physical labor, science, economics, politics, as well as all the creative arts, music, literature, all of that is under the realm of the common. Now, one thing I want to point out before we go any further here is that I don't want you to look at this and think, oh, so Christianity is, doesn't intersect with our involvement in culture. I'm not saying that. You are a Christian all the time, even in the culture, even in your vocation, as we'll go on to talk about. It's just that this involves not only believers, but believers and unbelievers alike. And so we are believers seven days a week. We are, we are citizens of the kingdom of God seven days a week, but not everybody in the world is in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is entered, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, through belief in the gospel. And you can be kicked out of the kingdom of God through excommunication. And so uh, Christianity, which is a truth claim that we believe, uh, is something that exists in this common culture. And, and cultural activity, as I pointed out, uh, work, rest, rule, and it involves uh, everything from the science, the arts, uh, physical labor, uh, hobbies, etc., etc. Uh, in the beginning, all things were perfectly in submission to God. It's very important for us to remember. There was no sin. There was only one kingdom and one covenant. Everything was in the kingdom of God before the fall. Uh, there was no distinction between the common and the holy or the secular and the sacred. That's another one. I knew I was forgetting something. Sacred. Secular. There was no distinction of these things in the garden. Everything was righteous. After the fall, however, God made a distinction, as we saw in Genesis 3. Uh, the whole world fell under one common curse, Yet God separated the seed of the woman from the seed of the serpent, forming the church, 
those in the covenant of grace, which begins at Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman would live and engage in cultural activity alongside the seed of the serpent. So for Christians, this is important for us to understand, there's both an antithesis and a commonality that we have with unbelievers. Uh, When it comes to the most essential and the most important things in life, those allied with the woman and those allied with the serpent are not the same. Uh, Not everybody is a believer. Not everybody is uh, holy in the eyes of God. Not everybody is in the Abrahamic New Covenant. Not everybody is a member of the church. Not everybody is in the kingdom of God. Um, the, but we, we recognize that we are living alongside uh, those with whom we have this antithesis. Uh, we believe in different things, however. We serve different masters, and we're headed for different destinies. There's no middle ground or a zone of moral neutrality uh, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Uh, Each person belongs uh, either to Satan, the serpent, or to Christ, the offspring. But so many things are the same for all people. We are all created in the image of God. Uh, That image has been damaged by sin, uh, and uh, all of us experience uh, the, the difficulties of one common curse. All women, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, experience child or, or, uh, pain in childbearing. Uh, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you don't need an epidural. Uh, you're gonna, it's going to hurt when you have a child in most cases. And for men, uh, you know, work is going to be laborious at times. Uh, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that your boss is always going to be nice and that everything's always going to go well. Um, we experience a common curse together, believers and unbelievers alike. And so there is this commonality that we have, and we need to remember that. You know, the, um, uh, our neighbor who is uh, not a believer is still made in the image of God, and we need to treat him as such, and also treat him as potentially among God's elect. This is something I think many Christians forget to do. They, we act as if we have some sort of superiority over, uh, the, over our neighbors who are unbelievers. We have no superiority. Uh, the, Christ is the superiority. Uh, we have no superiority. Uh, we are sinners that are just like them. Uh, we've been given something, uh, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which we did not earn. Um, we are no more superior over anyone else. We're all made in the image of God. It's just that we have uh, a different destiny that's been given to us by God's grace. And the neighbor with whom uh, we live that is an unbeliever is made in the image of God and may be one of God's elect. And God uses means. It's, it, is, it is improper and sinful to say, well, if they're elect, you know, God will figure it out. Um, well, the way that God brings the elect to faith is the same way you were brought to faith, and I was brought to faith, by, some, by, by somebody bringing the word. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And so, um, so we live in this world that's uh, filled with both. Uh, so then Scripture shows us how all of that will work out in human history. So if you have your Bibles, um, we look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3 a little bit. If you'll notice Genesis 4, what do we have in Genesis 4? Uh, we see the institution of civil government and the rise of cultural activity. So Genesis 4 records the episode of Cain and Abel, uh, showing how the antithesis between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is alive and well. 
and even violent toward the seed of the woman. Uh, there's always been violence towards believers. It goes all the way back to Abel. And uh, then immediately after that, you know how the story, it takes an interesting turn. Uh, in God's judgment upon Cain, he establishes the, the justice and order that is needed in the world by putting that mark on Cain and swearing an oath that anyone who punishes him would be punished. Uh, that amounts to the institution of the civil magistrate. Before the fall, there is no civil magistrate. There's no need for civil government. Adam did not pay taxes. He did not serve in the military. He had no interaction with police or courts because there was no sin. All of that has come as a result of the fall. The civil government is a necessary institution in a fallen world, but not a sinless world. And so as Abraham Kuyper said in his uh, famous Stone Lectures, God has instituted the magistrates by reason of sin. The state comes after the fall in order to help curb the destructive power of sin. At least that's what it's supposed to do. And it's always imperfect in that uh, execution. That's really important for us to understand. The state is there to curb the power of sin. That's what it's supposed to do. But it never gets it perfectly right. It's all part of what we call God's common grace. So there is, you know, redemptive grace is given to us through Christ, right? Redemptive grace is God's demerited favor poured out upon sinners uh, as he imputes the righteousness of Jesus Christ to those who believe. Uh, Common grace is something else. Common grace is God's undeserved kindness toward human beings in this world that uh, uh, involves a whole list of things. It's God's providential care of the world that has fallen. It has, we, could, we could put it into three main elements. It's God's good gifts to believers and unbelievers alike. So as Jesus and Paul both say, God sends the rain and the sun upon the just and the unjust alike. Um, the birth of children, family, uh, those things are common grace, blessings, um, as well as talents and abilities, uh, allowing us to make scientific and technological advances. Um, Often unbelievers uh, go much further in uh, technological, medicinal, scientific advancements than believers do because it's part of God's common grace, uh, the talents and the abilities that we have. Um, If you're looking for a good doctor to perform a a very difficult surgery on a loved one, um, you know, whether or not the, the, the surgeon is a Christian really isn't that relevant. What you want to make sure is, does this guy know what he's doing? Does he have a good education, good training? Does he, has, have people made it out alive? And, uh, and it's because it's part of God's common grace. Just because the guy's a believer, he, he could be a believer and be the, a, a, a wonderful, warm-hearted person and not a very good doctor. That's important for us to understand. Same with the car you drive. You don't, you don't go looking for a car saying, I want a car that a Christian built and designed. Um, no, but you don't do that. We do so many that you don't get on an elevator and say, did a Christian design this elevator? Because it might fall if it wasn't. No, you know that people, human beings, why? Because of God's common grace. Because of God's common grace. 
The, another element, so it's God's good gifts to believers and unbelievers alike. The second one is the human conscience and what we call natural law that is written on the heart of man. Man knows by nature that there are certain things that are right and wrong. Like C.S. Lewis said, it, you know, uh, take a man's seat from him on the bus, and suddenly he's not a moral relativist. He's going to say, hey, I was sitting there. You know, and we, well, what's true for you is not true for me. And, you know, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. People know in every culture that there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. Theft, murder, uh, even adultery. How many movies have you seen that are written by an unbeliever where it's the adultery in the film is, is shown to be a bad thing? And then at the end of the movie, somebody gets married, at least in those romantic comedies that your wife makes you watch, Right. And, and why? Why is it that even unbelievers make films like that? Because, we, because of natural law, because of, of the human conscience. Now, natural law, as important as it is, we have to understand, uh, it is a difficult thing because of the fall. People suppress the truth. And so it's always going to be, um, it's, it's going to be suppressed and, and uh, uh, not fully lived out the way it should because of the fall. So, common grace, God's good gifts to believers and unbelievers alike, human conscience, and then the restraint of sin. And that's where the state comes in. So the state is really there, as Paul says, to punish the evildoer, to restrain, to, con- to curb the effects of sin. The problem, of course, as all of human history shows and redemptive history shows, is that the state never gets that just right. And it's just overly simplistic to say, well, we support the state. You know, because the state is to punish the evildoer. The state is always going to get a little bit of that wrong because the state is occupied by sinful people. And so we ought not be surprised when we see the state abusing its power. You know, or the, the whole, you know, every time there's a community struggling with um, police and community relations, it's always, it's never one-sided. It's never one-sided. It's always going to be a mixture of fallen people. Uh, and, and even the state as it's trying to do what is right is sometimes going to get it wrong. And we need to remember that and be honest. Uh, so God's common grace, nevertheless, it, 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 it is still there. It's never perfect. And these things are often used for sinful means. They're often abused. But it's still there. Otherwise, the world would not continue. Uh, one thing before I move on, it's very important to note. This is a very important thing to note. The state comes after the fall. Okay? It comes after the fall. The family comes before the fall. The family is the basic building block of society, not the state. The, the family, is, because before the state was in existence, before the magistrate comes to being, what, what, how, where, where were all human relationships centered? They were centered in the family. And uh, in, when, in children being submissive to parents, Again, this is before the fall. Um, ever since the fall, there's, that hasn't worked out all the time, uh, children obeying their parents. Uh, in, in the, before the fall, you have what God gives as the unit to society for its embitterment and for its, its goodness. It's, it's still there, and it's still the basic building block of human society and, and not the state, even though it is uh, marred and distorted by sin. Okay, Genesis 4. 
we see the rise of the state by the mark of Cain that God puts on him. And, and, and we see that played out throughout history. Um, it's important to point out that the Bible does not give us a full-blown political theory. It just gives us basic principles. And uh, then we have to apply those principles with wisdom. But, uh, but it does give us principles that are, are very important for us to recognize. Um, then in chapter 4, there are three important cultural activities mentioned. If you have your Bible open there, look in verse uh, 20 through 22. Three guys, Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal. Tubal, Cain. Love saying, I just love saying that. Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal, Cain. Um, they become pioneers of three great areas of cultural activity. Uh, Jabal... Uh, or Jabal, is the um, father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So ranching. Um, I used to say agriculture until uh, a friend of mine who's a big paleo nut said that's not actually agriculture. We had an interesting debate, but um, it, he is right. That is ranching, livestock. Um, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Music. Okay, so ranching. We could include agriculture. Uh, music. And then Tubal Cain, who did not, as the dumb Noah movie portrayed, sneak onto the ark. Oh, my goodness. I, can't, I, I like Ridley Scott, but I cannot watch any movie that rewrites redemptive history. Um, anyway, Tubal Cain was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. So uh, metallurgy, as it's called. Another word I love to say. You don't get to say it very often. Um, so these are important cultural activities, okay? Uh, they're part of God's common grace. And you can see the wicked and the righteous, so to speak, uh, engaging in those things. Okay, Yet, in the midst of all of this, in the rise of culture, there's also a church forming. Verse 26, to Seth was also, a, Seth was the child who was born to Adam and Eve uh, that replaced Abel and uh, was born to him a son. He called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So there's the church in its infant state. Okay, then chapter 5 gives us a genealogy that shows us that people die. Then chapter 6 enters the whole Noah episode that brings you all the way up to uh, chapter 9. And uh, that shows us the rise of cultural activity and the evil in the world. And even though there is uh, God-instituted civil order in common grace we see how it can never ultimately bring a utopia. And uh, God brings judgment because the world is evil. And people are going about their ordinary cultural activity, marrying, giving in marriage, planting, doing all these ordinary things. Uh, but because of the evil, God brings judgment. And so the, the flood becomes a, uh, an anticipation of God's judgment on the last day. Uh, he won't judge with water, but he'll judge with fire. And he has promised not to judge the earth again, uh, to destroy it until Christ's coming, nor to destroy it with a flood. And he has given the sign of the, the rainbow uh, as uh, evidence for us to trust his promise. Uh, you know that whole episode, what happens. Um, 
Noah is spared with his family. They build an ark. It's like a mini church, as Kim Middlebarger pointed out in the uh, Q&A time of our eschatology conference. The, the church is built kind of like an ark. You're like on the ark, as it were, um, it, on, in, in church. Some of us are even animals uh, sometimes. I'm kidding. Um, but we see that, that that is the church subsumed in this infant state during this period of judgment brought through, okay? And then there's sort of this do-over of creation. Now, this is very important, the, the, uh, the Noahic covenant. So it brings us here to the end of chapter 8. And I want to read the Noahic covenant because all human beings are in this covenant. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, chapter 8, verse 20, and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever uh, again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now notice how this repeats the cultural mandate from Genesis 1. It sounds very similar. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. That's the only dietary restriction. But there's no, uh, the dietary restrictions of Israel are not for health purposes. They're purely symbolic for holiness. Um, But before then, everything you could eat, pork and lobster and everything else. And for your lifeblood, verse 5, I will require a reckoning from Every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So again, this is civil government, magistrate. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So God uh, um, institutes by means of uh, natural law and the Noahic covenant, capital punishment, for the preservation of life, for the preservation of life. Uh, and, and, and all cultures know this. I mean, that's why the, the Romans, who were not believers by any stretch, crucified people uh, so that uh, there would be order in society. Uh, in the Old West, you know, it was by hanging so that there was order, and you left the person out so that everybody could see. Uh, it put fear into you of what not to do, not to kill people. Why? Because people are precious. Because people are precious. And, uh, you know, and so yes, we should advocate capital punishment, but we should not do so with, uh, we should do so with the understanding that people are precious, and that's why. We, we need to be pro-life, not just for the womb, but for all of life. And so uh, we, this, is, this is what God is getting at here. I love what Chris Christie said. Um, it's easy to be pro-life only when they're in the womb. They haven't done anything to disappoint you yet. Uh, but it's harder to be pro-life after that. But we need to be pro-life for everything. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Okay, again, verse 7, it's repeating the uh, uh, cultural mandate. uh, Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. 
Then God said to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth that is with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. A bow, like a bow you shoot, and it's pointed which way? Up to heaven. Uh, It's stretched. So in other words, if God does not keep his promise, you know, he's saying that let me come under this judgment if I don't keep my promise. Uh, When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow that is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Doesn't mean there won't be local floods. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So it's not just with Noah and his family, but it's with all of creation. It's with all of creation. The Noahic covenant, as uh, I defined it in in the book Sacred Bond, um, is God's common grace covenant with the earth, despite man's depravity, to sustain its order until the consummation. And so that, that covenant formally establishes uh, the common kingdom, the common kingdom. Not, j- not just the, the kingdom of God where God's people who are reconciled to himself uh, are members, but the common kingdom of the whole world where all cultural activity takes place. It's a covenant in which all humans and all creation relate to God. Natural law and common grace, they still function in the post-flood world. And the kingdom of God will continue, of which Noah was a part of the kingdom of God, simultaneously, that will continue, okay, all the way until Messiah comes and he consummates the kingdom at his second coming. Believers and unbelievers alike live alongside each other in this common realm until then. But that doesn't mean, okay, that doesn't mean that the culture is neutral. That's important for us to understand. When God made everything in the beginning, how did he make it? He said it was, it was good. So the earth is good. The problem with the culture is not uh, the earth, it's sin that exists inside the world. And uh, again, the problem isn't that you're human. You know, um, being human is good. The problem is that uh, the sin that resides in the human heart. And so, uh, as David Van Drunen points out in his very helpful book, Living in God's Two Kingdoms, he says, uh, God God himself establishes the rules of the common kingdom. It exists under the lordship of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The common kingdom, says Van Drunen, is not in any sense a realm of moral neutrality or human autonomy. God is still ruler over all of it. Uh, So there's this reiteration of the cultural mandate, covenant made with all creation. It concerns ordinary cultural activities, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, food, justice, etc. 
Okay. That's how the world continues. Now, what happens after that whole scene of the flood? Well, you get another genealogy in chapter 10, right? Showing how man begins to uh, multiply on the earth. And then in chapter 11, you get all of these people putting their heads and hearts together, living in harmony by God's natural law and building a city of righteousness, right? What city did they build? Babel. That's what you get. It shows, no, this is what happens. Even though there's natural law, the problem is natural law gets perverted because of sin. The whole Bible is showing us a need of a Savior. Natural law cannot save us. Common grace cannot save us. It's just there so that the world will not be destroyed while God's redemptive grace is active, bring to perfection his plan to redeem for himself a people who will dwell in the new heavens and new earth. And so, yeah, you get Babel, this, this total monstrosity and antichrist, uh, where man tries to reach heaven on his own and make a name for himself. And so God includes that into the story. And then he brings us up to the main guy in, uh, in Genesis, who is Abraham. And so as we're moving along in redemptive history, okay, if this is the end, when Christ returns, and we have the tree of life, okay, I always draw the tree down there to remind us. How many times have you seen this tree? The tree of life, glory, glorified life, all that which Adam was held out for him in the beginning, okay? And he doesn't reach because he has the fall. And God promises in Genesis 3.15 here, okay, that cultural activity will continue in the common, but he, and it's going to be cursed, but that he will send uh, the, a second Adam who will come in the fullness of time, okay, to bring us to glory. Because that's the whole goal is this. The whole goal is not, let's have harmony now. Let's, get, let's try to make the world as good as we can while it's sinful. We need to do that. Now, next week we're going to talk about how do we do that. But that's not, that's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to be brought to glory, which God has promised. And that is not just dying and floating off to heaven. That's what a lot of Christians assume. No, it's living in this world city building, cultural activity, being in a world where you will work and rest and play and enjoy life and eat and uh, have relationships and be happy, free from sin, free from evil, free from frustration, free from disappointment, and in the presence of God. And I'm looking forward to that. Everything else is just uh, a, a, a shack in the ghetto until then. But, we, but we, try to, we, we do the best we can with everything God has given us. Nevertheless, this is the goal. Okay? So what happens? We see God's covenant with uh, the whole earth, okay, through Noah, where he reiterates things that he did before the fall, cultural mandate, work, food, cultural activity, and the state. 
which in Genesis 4, back here, when he put the mark on Cain, he instituted. Uh, There needs to be a magistrate to curb the effects of evil. Okay, now the story of redemption, though, really comes into play here in chapter 12 with Abraham. And then in chapter 15, the great covenant is made. And what does God promise Abraham? I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you an offspring. uh, And you are going to be a blessing to all nations. The whole redemptive program, the whole redemptive program, both in its old and new covenant forms, is anchored in Abraham. In Genesis 12, 15, 17, okay? His descendants, uh, Joseph, you know, and the, his 11 brothers become 12 tribes in Egypt. You know the story, God brings them out. Then he makes a different covenant with the people. It's quite different. In this one, the people take the oath. In this one, God takes the oath. And it's still going, as Paul says in Galatians. It still goes. It's not interrupted. Uh, in this covenant, however, the covenant of law, he says, I'm going to bring you out, and I'm going to, I'm going to make the holy and the common come together. In Israel, in Israel, was it a common kingdom? No. Could you be a Moabite and just say, hey, I'm going to go pitch my tent in Israel? No, you're going to get the sword. Because the holy and the common come together again, just as they were before the fall. The sword that was taken from Adam and given to the angels is now given to the Levites to protect what is holy. The land is considered holy. Geopolitical uh, nation is wed to the church because of this covenant, a temporary covenant which Christ fulfills. It's to give us a picture of heaven in the sense that all is holy, but it also shows us that man cannot keep the law. That even if you have a nation where uh, your leaders met with God himself, and if you had a nation where God himself spoke to you and gave you his law out of heaven, and you, had a, you lived in a nation where God himself said, you are my people, you still would be a sinful nation because of sin that you can't keep all of it. It's all to point us to Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Galatians, the whole law was just a tutor, just a tutor to bring us to the one who fulfilled the law, Jesus. It was once again showing us, just as Adam could not keep it, Israel could not keep it. And we need a second Adam. We need a true Israel. We need the offspring of Abraham. And he fulfills that covenant, and that covenant has passed away. And so, uh, now... Now we have the new covenant, okay? But before we get there, let's talk about the exile real quick. Now, how was Israel to live? You know, two kingdoms become one for Israel. This was only the case for the people of God living inside the borders of the promised land. But what happened when Israel was exiled to Babylon? How were they to live? It's not a rhetorical question. How were they to live? Were they called to take over Babylon? 
Would they get angry because these Babylonians, you know, they don't mention the feasts when I go buy my coffee. That's how we act sometimes. We get angry at the culture for not giving us favored status as Christians. Well, uh, how are, the, how are the, uh, the Jews to live in that city? What was to be their guidelines? Does the, did the Bible say anything? Did the prophets say anything to Israel when they were exiled and they were outside of the Holy Land and they were living as exiles, as sojourners, as pilgrims once again? How were they to live? Well, Jeremiah 29 tells us, and you turn there real quick. This is really important because this is what the New Testament picks up on for our ethics today. This was a two-kingdom experience for the people of God. So while in Babylon, they participated in the common kingdom alongside Babylonians under the provisions of the Noahic covenant. But they were also radically separated from the Babylonians as the children of Abraham, who still participated in the kingdom of God and uh, continued in their cultic practices. Cultic meaning religious. So Jeremiah 29, we can pick up in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease." But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, Babylon, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So in other words, there in, uh, in Babylon, the, the people of God living as exiles are to participate in common grace, Noahic covenant kind of stuff. Building houses, planting gardens, you don't have to flee. You don't have to run to the He doesn't say run to the hills. Go establish a, uh, a, a believer's ghetto where only the believers are. Because you don't want to be, you don't want to be around those Babylonians, you know. Don't, don't let your kids get around those Babylonians. That's not what he says. He says live there. Seek the welfare of that city. In other words, be involved in the cultural activity of that city. Be involved, you, people of God. Seek the welfare of that city. Make it your city. Yes, it's temporary, but you're going to be there a while. And so do these things well. Now, when we come into the new covenant, what do we have? We come into the new covenant because the people are brought back from exile. They're in Israel. It only lasts for a little while. In many ways, you know, the theocracy, it, it, it ends in its essence at the exile. They're brought back. Another temple is built, and then it's all destroyed in AD 70. Uh, But that's all just to bring the Christ. And then from Jerusalem, what happens? A church is planted. Jesus, uh, before he ascends into heaven, says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you and uh, I will be with you always to the end of the age. And he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And that's what we see happening in Acts. The gospel goes out. But it's not 
one kingdom. Um, how do Christians now relate to the state? For example, we'll pick up on this you know, a couple weeks. Um, well, Paul says in Romans 13, you know, the state is part of the common realm. Uh, Christians are never uh, called in, in the book of Acts or in any of the epistles to create a, a, a Christian government, for example. That's part, of the, that's part of the common realm. Nevertheless, we are to seek the welfare of that city that is common, that city in which we live, uh, alongside non-believers. And we can be salt. We are called to be salt and light. And in that sense, make an impact on the culture, not redeem the culture. Remember, redeeming the culture is one bad uh, tendency that Christians have. Well, we've got to go claim it. Well, that's not a Christian ethic. That's not an ethic of an exile. Uh, the opposite bad extreme is we've got to flee the culture. Got to get out of here, you know, because uh, it's really bad. And, but we'll bring the sin with us. That's the problem. And, uh, and so we're to seek the welfare of the city. And that's what you see with the, the, the apostles. Where do they go? They go to the big cities of the world. They go to Jerusalem. They go to Corinth. They go to Rome. They go to Ephesus. They go to every major city in the first century Greco-Roman world that was filled with every uh, type of immorality and false teaching and, and form of sin that you could imagine. Temples with temple prostitutes, multiple different gods. They went there, they planted churches, and they said, now, uh, in these churches, raise your children. Uh, raise them up in the Lord. Br- bring them up, as he says in, in Ephesians 6, in the training and admonition of the Lord. And in that way, the whole globe is being covered with the knowledge of the Lord. But it's a, but it's a spiritual nation to which we belong now. The nation, as, as Peter says, okay, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, is a nation of sojourners, a nation of exiles. Uh, we seek the city that is above, the city that is yet to come, as Hebrews says. Uh, we, we look above. We, we wait for our citizenship, which is in heaven right now. Uh, we wait for that heaven to be brought down at the, at the resurrection, which is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. One of Peter's chief concerns is to instruct Christians about their place in the present world. And so he he picks up on that language of Jeremiah 29 and also the language of uh, the Israelites as they went through the wilderness. He calls us sojourners and exiles. Uh, We we have no land this side of the consummation. You know, we don't take over whole nations. We're to be involved uh, for for the good of our neighbor and to ask, what is the best thing that I can do for my neighbor? Uh, but we are to, uh, to, at all times, seek the welfare of the city and even treat the magistrate, who may be evil, with great respect. So th- this is the, the kingdom in which we now live. And in, in this kingdom, it's different than the kingdoms of the world. In the kingdom of God, it's a place of forgiveness. It's not a place of vengeance. In the kingdom of God... Marital tension should not lead to divorce. Lawsuits should not be necessary. In the kingdom of God, slaps on the cheek should not provoke retaliation. In the kingdom of God, uh, the presence of an enemy should not inflame hatred. In the kingdom of God, uh, it is not like the common kingdom, where there are winners and losers based on your performance. In the kingdom of God, uh, we are judged by the performance of Jesus Christ. 
Uh, we are all losers because of our sin. We're all winners because of, the, of Christ's righteousness imputed to us. And in the world, yes, there's rich and there's poor. There's slave and there's free. There's, there's Jew and there's Gentile. In the kingdom of God, there is neither slave nor free. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, not even male or female in the sense of status. The kingdom of God is different. And the kingdom of heaven is a realm where the demands of justice, they've been satisfied in Christ. So if we want to see the kingdom of heaven here and now, where do we look? You look to a faithful church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a pilgrimage in this life. And disciples need to be made in every city around the world until the coming of the Lord Jesus. We'll stop there for today, and uh, next week we'll pick up on vocation and uh, culture building, and then on the last uh, day we'll we'll pick up on uh, the state and talk a little bit about uh, politics. But we have just a few minutes for questions, so any questions? Yes, Debbie. I'm sorry. Yes. Yes. Well, uh, mom, dad, children. No. I'm not saying that. Yeah. But the family institution is before the fall. Because God creates uh, marriage and, and he says, go and multiply. So even though children aren't born before the fall, the institution of the family is there. Because he performs a marriage, which is, by the way, one man, one woman. Man is defined by God and by nature. Woman is defined by God and by nature. We've got to be specific about these things nowadays. And, uh, and children born to them so that they could multiply. That program doesn't happen. Presumably, if Adam does not fall, he would have populated the earth, as he did after the fall. So that's instituted, but yeah, civil magistrate with rules for punishment is not instituted. So, yeah, Eric. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised you're interested in this subject. So. Right. The, the, so right. Right. Yeah, I would agree with that, and I think that's very important. As I was saying, how it's important to understand the family predates the state and is the is the basic building block for human society, and it's important to. Um, to understand that those that th- those kinds of governments, family government, church government, that that stuff is, is all to it's supposed to be done in submission to God, our Creator. Yeah, the problem is sin, of course. Sin is always the problem, and uh, and yet still, I mean, you can have uh, you know a very unbelieving family and see that 
there's this understanding of natural law. There's certain things that people know are right and know are wrong. Um, and I would agree, any time that those things, that the allegiance is given to the state in those areas, it, you're only going to run into problems. Because well, all you're basically doing is entrusting it to other sinful people. You know, this, the state is never going to be, no matter what form of government it is, it's... Right. It's always going to be flawed. And this is, why, this is why also, guys, that as Christians, you know, I'll just say this as a pastor, I think the more you explore the Bible and what it says with regard to the magistrate and the state, it's impossible, it's just impossible to be a consistent Christian and, and say, I endorse every platform of my political party. It's impossible. And if you're doing that, I would even argue it's naive. It's it, because then it's too simplistic. It's too e- it's like the person who says, "Well, I, it's too hard to go and look at all these claims. I'm just going to whatever the church believes. I'm going to go with that implicit faith." And we kind of have this implicit faith sometimes in political parties. And so I'm I'm a registered something, and I uh, and and I've been since age 18, never left the party, and uh, but I'm very critical of that party on many things because what's your first party? Your first party is the kingdom of God. That's your party. And guess what? The kingdom of God and the such and such party will never line up perfectly because of sin. Because of sin. And so that's why, in some sense, like I was talking to Kim Riddlebarger about this. He just wrote a great book on the two kingdoms, and it's not out yet. I'm pre-reading it for him, and um, it's very good so far. And he was telling me, he goes, I don't have a political party. Because I'm always, I get frustrated with everybody. And, and there's a sense in which a Christian has to kind of ride loosely to that. Uh, because you're always going to see, you just can't accept it, lock, stock, and bridge. And so much of it is just politicizing anyway, going back and forth, trying to get one up on the other. That it's just a big game and form of entertainment. Um, but our political party as Christians, as according to the New Testament, first and foremost, is the nation that is eternal, which is the church. And it's a monarchy. And there's a king. Um, everything, less, everything other than that is a lesser form of evil. And it's always going to never fit just perfectly. So, all right, we've got to stop there. I'll stick around for if you have any other questions. And, uh, but let's be merciful to the children and the Sunday school teachers. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the time you've given us. Please bless your word to our minds, to our hearts. Conform us, Lord, we pray. Uh, to Scripture, help us to be, we pray, faithful citizens of your kingdom, uh, submitting ourselves to the kingship, the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we look forward to his return, Lord. And we ask that you would help us in the meantime uh, to engage in common cultural activity with love for our neighbors, uh, with respect for human life, and with a desire to honor you in everything we do. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.